that, okay, it's not, I'm not being Bruce, I'm not going to be Bruce Springsteen. You know, it, it, it was a shock, you know, when I was 38 or whatever, I realized I'm not going to be Bruce Springsteen, which is depressing to say that, but you know. Well, but maybe Bruce Almighty. <laughs> <laughs> but through it, God is sovereign. God is leading. And so the question is, do you trust God? Welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by SchoolofLaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show. Welcome to today's podcast. This is Rick Roberts, and you're listening to The School of Laughs. Can you believe that almost seven years ago, 2014, we launched the School of Laughs. It was uh, late in June, just before 4th of July, so I think it was like June 29th. We launched the uh, School of Laughs, 2014, and here we are, 200-something crazy episodes into it, and some cool changes are on the horizon. So if you're a first-time listener, just be patient with me for about 90 seconds, and if you're a long-term listener, you might be interested in knowing that uh, as we hit that seven-year-on-the-nose mark, I plan on making some changes to the way uh, you hear the podcast, the way you can receive the podcast, and to future episodes. Lots of big changes coming already in the works and doing some behind the scenes on some interesting things that I think you'll like. And I think we'll give you uh, more information than you're getting now from the School of Laughs, but just in a different kind of way. Uh, seven years. That's crazy, isn't it? I think that's a syndication run in TV. So we may have done our full run of the School of Laughs podcast, as you know it, or maybe we're just getting started. That voice you heard at the beginning of the podcast is my good friend and office mate. That's right. I'm a comedian with an office. People think it's ridiculous, but it's a good place to get things done. That's Rick Altizer. Rick, I met many years ago. I've always appreciated his uh, his very frank honesty, his insights, but man, his skill level in the creative talent area is just off the charts. He can sing, he can play guitar, multiple instruments. Uh, he's produced a few of my songs before, helped me master a couple of my live CDs. He also has produced uh, three movies, directed and produced three movies for Shonda Pierce, which you may know about. Uh, Unashamed was one of them. Uh, Enough, Laughing in the Dark, those are all three that he put together. And he tells us how he learned how to do that. He produced a, a movie for Russ Taff called I Still Believe. Uh, all those were in theaters. He's also currently working on a movie for the Kendrick Brothers, who you might know from War Room, Courageous, and Fireproof. And this new movie is called Show Me the Father. So he's got his hands on a lot of different projects. And as successful as that sounds, he's going to open up telling about his failures, which I think is my favorite part about Rick, is he's very candid about how uh, big things got for a second and then how they got smaller but actually bigger in the long run. So all that's coming up in just a second. I would like to thank today's Patreon supporter for the episode. It is John Smith. John, thanks for your long-term commitment to making the podcast happen. Uh, you've been there for quite a while. I'm just kind of looking at the screen here to see how long you've been with us, and it looks like uh, since October 11, 2019. So thanks for hanging in there and listening to the podcast. Hope you're still getting some good stuff out of it. If you'd like to learn how to support the podcast through Patreon, just go over to schooloflast.com forward slash p-a-t-r-e-o-n now let's get into this podcast with rick altizer 
Welcome to the School of Last podcast. This is Rick Roberts, along with my guest today, Rick Altizer, who does the Rick Altizer Show. And we're going to do a thing today where I interview him, and he's going to be using this on his show, and I'll be using it on mine. It's amazing. It's we're, we're you know we're just we're just trying to be good stewards of our time. Yes. We can't make any more time. We, no. can, we can make more mistakes, more children, but we can't make more time. So I'm doing his show, he's doing my show, and we're killing two birds with one stone, and it's awesome. Right. And that bird uh, is time. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a, for my audience, they they heard Rick Altizer on an episode a while back where I had a, a, an episode called Examining Comedy, and he kind of asked me to explain how comedy works, how comedy writing works. So his voice may sound familiar, but I want to have to... I've wanted to get him back on for quite a while because Rick has been uh, not only a good friend, but I've seen that he is a, a creative type in the true true definition of the word. You're a musician. You're a jingle writer. You, you're a, a producer. You've produced uh, nine, nine CDs as a musician, right? You've helped me with projects that I've had. And more recently, you've been a film producer, which is super intense. And so today I'd like to kind of walk a through director, those. director, film director. Film director, and a producer, but yes. And we can talk about the differences between the two yeah. as well, mm-hmm. because you, they do overlap a little bit, those roles. But I kind of want to walk through where you are today, but I want to start kind of back at the beginning to see what got you to this point. So if, if you don't mind, tell me about early Rick Altizer. You're right around your teenage years, somewhere around there. What was, what did those days look like? What were you interested in? I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to be a rock star or a preacher. Right. <laughs> and I remember I, I remember exactly where I was. I was sitting at a table somewhere at someone's home having dinner. And they said, well, so Rick, what do you want to do? I said, well, I want to be a, either a rock star or a preacher. And they said to me, well, why don't you do both? And it, and it just stopped and it hit me. I went, I never, I never thought of that. I never had connected. Because back, you know, back in those days, Christian uh, music hadn't really evolved into what it, it, it is now. And so the thought, wow, a rock star preacher. So I, I never, uh, so my, my thing, I wanted to be Bruce Springsteen. I, I always thought I was going to be, uh, Bruce Springsteen. I had Bob Dylan's manager was my manager. Uh, and how, how did that come about? Like, what was, I was, I was in a band in LA. I was living in LA and I was in a band and we were in the best of LA competition contest. Mm-hmm. They're looking for the best band in LA and our band won. We won. And I was, you know, Front page in the paper. I had a big spread on us, best of LA. And so I just called cold, uh, Bob Dylan's management company. And, uh, I called at a time when the guy, uh, his assistant who never answers the phone ever just was there and just picked up the phone. And, uh, I told him, hi, you know, I'm just blah, blah, blah. I just won the best of LA contest. I can't get, you know, can't get noticed. It's such a hard, road to climb, you know, if I just sent you a tape, would you listen to it? You know, and he later tells me they never listened to unsolicited material ever. Uh But he said, you just seem like a nice guy. And I just said, yeah. So this is a crazy story. I've never shared this story. So I'm so glad I get to tell this story. I've been interested in this story. So I sent him a tape and I send him a little, little brochure I put together and a picture of the band. And they call me and said, yeah, we'd like for you to come in. Could, could you meet with us? So sure. So, I go in and I walk in and the first thing I see is an original Escher p- painter. You know, the oh, guy wow. who. Oh yeah. MC Escher. You, you're going upstairs one way and it looks like it's going up or down. You can't tell which <laughs> right. direction. Right. So, uh, he, he managed Bob Dylan, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Rick Ocasek of the Cars, Tom Petty, 
So uh, he used to own Asylum Records with David Geffen. So, I mean, the guy was like, this guy was... Totally legit. Yeah. And so I'm with his assistant, uh, Jeff, uh, Jeff Kramer was his name, who still manages Bob Dylan. Um, and so, Jeff, I, I walk into his office, and I'm just sitting there going, wow. And so they sit me down, and they say, uh, this is the truth. I promise I'm not making this up. <laughs> and I felt weird sharing it, but this is what they told me. They Tell said, me. We think you're a musical genius, and we can't believe you don't have a record deal. Uh, we've had five offers for you already. Urbazov has offered half a million dollars, and, uh, you know, we're going to do this. And, I, and my mouth, just it's, it was that, you know, that dream meeting yeah. that you just dream about. Someone off the street, some unknown nobody. Sends in a tape and the person yeah. hears it and then boom. And now you're this big, whatever, you know, and, and it was just that dream meeting. And, and I'm sitting there and there's, uh, Andy, there's an original Andy Warhol on the wall wow. of Rick Ocasek that he did. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, you know, so th I mean, I'm just in this amazing environment in, in, uh, in, in Santa Monica, you know, this building with all this. And, and it was just a, it was weird. And I remember, in the car, driving home in LA traffic, and I said, and I started getting nervous because I was married. I was nervous, and I said, "Lord, if this isn't you, stop it." Which was a weird prayer. But I was a worship leader at the time uh -huh. in my church, and I'd been pursuing music for such, you know. But but I recognized, and uh, doggone it, if he didn't answer that prayer, <laughs> <laughs> so it's not me at all, man. <laughs> I'll make I'll make the story because now I'm yeah I'm opening up and got to tell the rest of the right, story right, right? I've started it <laughs> so uh, uh, you know I go and I do meet with Elliot Roberts I you know uh, he said you know record companies will hire you just because they want to work with me you know because he's he was just a legend and he was just a legend in the music industry still is um, and uh, I did meet with the head of Sony they uh, he gave a a 90-minute tape to a guy who was at Epic. Sony and Epic were the same. The guy who ran the Epic office. He said he listened to, which was like almost two and a half albums, three albums of material. Back in those days, you would send like three songs. Mm -hmm. But he gave him a full 90-minute tape. And the guy said he listened to it all the way on the plane from L.A. to New York. And he got on a plane and came back because he wanted to meet me because they wanted to sign me. And so I was going to... I met with a VP of Sony. He came down. I had a, I had a band. We, we did a, a showcase for him. I didn't really have a band. It was all, this is all basically me. I was playing everything. Uh -huh. I had, I had some guys who were helping, but it, me and another guy who were writing this stuff and, but it was kind of a self-made thing. And so I was trying to make it look like it was a band. They were looking for a band. They thought, I thought, I didn't know. I was right. young and stupid. It would have been better if he'd come and I just took a guitar and sang mm -hmm. you and my songs. But instead, I got, got this heavy metal guitarist and this drummer who is this amazing drummer, but really, really loud. Right, right, right. <laughs> and Cam just blew them away, and it was this—it was this whole other sound. It was this big, loud rock sound mm -hmm. that wasn't what they heard, and they decided to pass. Which I don't think Elliot Roberts was used to people passing. And after they passed, I couldn't get them to return a phone call hmm. for. Two months. No one called me back. I later heard my sister had a friend who was also an artist there, and he said he heard them have a fight over me because the assistant was leaving to take Bob Dylan, 
and they had an argument over who was going to take me. And they, this is what someone told my sister. Mm-hmm. I didn't hear it, but this is what she told me that someone had told her. And they said, well, this is stupid. Let's don't fight over it. Let's just neither of us take him. Oh, man. <laughs> so I finally called back and got somebody else on the phone there. Two, I think it was three months later after not hearing from anybody. And I said, well, what about the $500,000 deal from Irv Azoff? What about the five offers that, you know? And he said, uh, yeah, that wasn't true. Oh, man. I said, why would he tell me that? I, he says, I don't know, but that, 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 none of that, that's not true. Mm-hmm. None of that happened. So why would he tell some nobody, right, kid off the street that? Yeah. Why, why give him more hope? I mean, just walking in there and have a meeting was, uh, was fulfilled. Man. Hey, we'd like you. <laughs> yeah. We'd love to work with you. Let's see what we can do. Right. Great. But we got five offers. Irv Azoff offered half a million. You know, and we're going to, you're going to be the next, you know, why would they do that? Mm-hmm. And I said to him, why would he, why would he lie to me? He goes, you know, I don't, I don't know what to tell you, you know, so we're not telling you to, you know, but we're not, we're not mm-hmm. interested, you know, and call. So this whole thing just was this slow spiral into right <laughs> nothingness. You're, you've got five offers. You're going to be this. You're going to be Bruce Springsteen uh, big to no one will return your call. And it's just, it's done. Yeah. And you're back to where you were. And all that happened in three to four months. Boom, 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 boom. Uh, yeah, right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And, and so I'm exactly right back where I were was. And God really used that to get me to get out of L.A. Uh-huh. And then I came to Nashville, which was the best thing I ever did. And uh, But it was a very uh, frustrating and challenging time. Mm-hmm. Very frustrating and challenging for me personally, uh, trying to just get through that and... Uh, the bigger picture for me was getting my identity not to be in music, but in my, you know, as a Christian, mm-hmm. my identity is is in, is my belief in God and, right. and who Christ is in me. That's who I am. And it can't be based on what I do. And, uh, you know, whether someone approves of me as a singer or not or whatever, mm-hmm. I can't let that define me. And it was a hard lesson, but it was a very healthy lesson for me. And, you know, I don't know if I'd have stayed married if this, mm-hmm. that had happened. I now have two amazing boys who you know. Yeah. Um, my life is great. I love my family. <laughs> right. And I, this, this summer I was mowing the yard and, uh, well, this is a long story, but, <laughs> uh, I was mowing the yard this summer and I just started thinking and I was started thanking God. Thank you that that never happened for me. Mm-hmm. I would hate to have to go s- sing those songs. And, you know, I don't know if, it, if I'd have made it or, you know, sure. or to have been struggling. You, know, you see these guys and they're, they're hashing out the, the two popular songs they have and they keep singing those songs over and over and over. And that's all they do is go from town to town to town to town. Right. Play the same 12 songs over and over and over for the next 40 years. It's like, wow, thank you, God, that I never, that I didn't do that. Yeah. I, I'm much happier doing what I'm doing now. And, I got a great marriage and 33 years of marriage to my wife that I don't think I would have had had, had that happened. So, and you, you know, it, even in those times where you think this is terrible, God is still leading us, guiding us sovereign over our lives in ways that we can't even imagine. And, yeah. Uh, he's good. He's and, great. <laughs> and he was extra good to you because you, you learned that lesson early 
and it was a hard, quick lesson. And even though you're still realizing the results from it today, it was earlier enough in your life where you could get the course corrected. You know, the comedy and musicians, uh, comedians and musicians are very similar in the sense that you try to build this thing and then you feel you got to go promote this thing and be the biggest thing. And then even for Christian artists, I believe, and Christian comedians, sometimes they have to talk themselves into, well, um, I've got to focus on me because if, if I get a bigger platform, then I can share God to more people. Right. And it can be a very distracting goal to get your thing going bigger. If Whenever you get God's thing going bigger, you'll benefit. Don't worry about it, you know. <laughs> but when you try to make yourself the focus of everything and, and all the goals are there and all the, the pressure and all the time, you – you're not serving God. You're serving yourself. God can work with you on any project you've got. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, you know, for comics that are listening, musicians, some of your listeners to your show, there, there are times where it's easy to convince yourself that you're doing God's work when you're really trying to say, I'm, I'm, I'm doing good work and I'll share God's message when I get bigger platform. Mm-hmm. God can use any platform. You sitting next to a guy at Fazoli's is the only platform God needs. You know what I mean? So... I'm glad that I'm sorry that you didn't have songs that I recognize on the radio, <laughs> but I'm glad I recognize you as the guy across the, the desk in our office. So that's cool. Um, so that was early on. You said you moved to Nashville. Now, was part of that move family related? Like you had family here, or your wife did, or was that move? Uh, I still want to be around the industry, but maybe yeah, it was not. A music, it was a music decision. As a, I was a staff writer for Warner, Warner Brothers in L.A., and I knew Nashville was a music town, so let's get my wife. We just we're just starting a family. Let's let's get to Nashville. I was born in Knoxville, so this is kind of my home. I knew Nashville had a lot of publishing here, and so I'll go to Nashville and I'll just I'll just be a writer or see what happens. I don't know. I came out here, and God really uh, said, "I you know I want you to just lay this down." Mm-hmm. And so it was okay. God, here's Isaac. I'm putting him on the table. And then he says, okay, now put the knife in. Mm-hmm. And I said, I looked up and I said, you were supposed to stop me. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute, God. I, I thought you were going to stop me. He says, no, this you put it in. Yeah. And so uh, that was very hard. And, and we're, we're talking a two, three-year period here of – of completely dying to to this, my whole life was defined on this very uh, ambitious, working hard, very focused. You know, I had at that point, I had five albums. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had five albums. I could, if I'd have gotten a deal, I was good. I was good to go for a while. I, I had a good, solid five good albums mm-hmm. of material. Easy. Uh, so I mean, I, I had a wealth of 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 stuff that was ready to rock if that would have worked. And uh, it just just die, uh-huh. and so that was so hard. That was so hard. And then uh, I started writing songs because I, I recognized if I didn't continue creating and writing, I would get depressed. So I wrote songs every Tuesday night was music night. My wife would let me do that. You know, I'd go downstairs <laughs> and do music night, and I wrote songs just for God, and I didn't play them for anybody. I didn't let anybody hear them, and it was just all the songs were just between me for me and God. And it was a way for me to keep doing the gifting he'd given me, but helping me just kind of work through this. Mm-hmm. And then about a year, two years after that, I felt released to go ahead and play some of the songs live. So I played them live one night, and there's a guy going, have you got a record deal? <laughs> <laughs> no. And he goes, well, you need one. I go, yeah, okay, whatever. And 
I, I said I said to my wife, you know, what's going to happen is they're going to sign me, then the record company, they're going to go out of business. That's what's going to happen. Right, right. right. So, <laughs> so they, he comes in, he wants to sign me, and uh, and then they go out of business. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they got bought out by this other company called KMG Records, which was here in Nashville, Buddy Killing label, uh-huh. Buddy Killing, Killing, uh, Buddy Killing Circle. He owned uh, Tree Publishing, big music legend here in Nashville. Wanted to have his own record company, like his friend Mike Kerb. So uh, they brought me in to fire me. Right. <laughs> uh, and so I had said, well, here's all these songs I have that I've been writing to the Lord. I'll let you hear them if you want to hear them. You know? I had, a, at that time, it was a dat tape of about 60 minutes of, and uh, the pr- president of the label was a guy named Kent Songer, who you know. Yep. And uh, he listened to him that night, listened to the whole tape, and called me back the next day and said, you're our first artist. You're, you, we can't go wrong with you. You know, he said the uh, the critics will love you, and you're a great way to start our label. So they signed me uh, to a record deal, and and I said to him, I hope well, I hope you don't mind me going through all this. <laughs> no, that's what I want to know. Um, <clears throat> I said to him, I will sign with you on two two uh, conditions. I was okay. What I said, one, I'll never do Christian fluff, mm-hmm. and two, you have nothing I need. As long as we're clear on that, we're good. Yeah. And he goes, well, uh, okay. (laughs) You know, that's two crazy conditions. (laughs) But I needed to tell him that, that, you know, I don't need this. Mm -hmm. I don't need your record deal. Uh, I'm not going to do that again. And I'm not going to do Christian fluff. Um, So uh, it started from there. I was their first artist. So I got all the all the uh, promotion of, you know, full page ads and CCM magazine, all kinds of promotion because they were promoting their label and I was the only artist they had. Mm -hmm. So they're letting everybody know, Hey, we're a new record label. Here we are. And here's our first artist. So uh, I got to work with a guitar player by the name of Adrian Ballou. Oh, wow. And he played on it and then we got, uh, ended up, we mixed it together. So we said, Hey, could we call you a Uh co-producer? That really helped us. And I was, getting a lot of airplay on AAA radio. And I had uh, contacted all the secular labels. Every secular label was talking to me about possibly doing something with them, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, so it was, it was interesting. Then, then KMG went out of business and, yeah. <laughs> you know, I sold dozens of records and, you know, I mean, the first record. Sold them like hotcakes, yeah. but not like records. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> it did. Okay. Then the record label went out of business and, uh, you know, did some stuff, made a few records, went to Holland, was kind of a me- medium sized artist in Holland. And, Got recognized in the mall. Hey, you were <laughs> yeah. Galtizer, can I have your autograph? Right. And the band looks at me, you are such a rock star. You know, <laughs> the Dazel, had, David Hasselhoff of yeah, Holland. <laughs> walking around, you know, at this festival and they had these big screens and there's my music video up on this huge screen. I just, I'm just walking and there's my video. And so, uh, you know, it was, uh, went to have one final gig, uh, uh, with, uh, it was a festival and a band named Delirious was the headliner and, I went on before them and, you know, the first three rows, they're all singing my songs. I mean, I'm looking down, there's all these kids and they know all my songs. So, and, and I'm up on that stage and it was a big show and it was a great show and probably, you know, a couple thousand people in the, in the, in the auditorium and it was packed out and the front row, two rows were, that, I mean, I had that moment. I yeah. had that experience. I went home from Holland, went home. Uh, the two kids were sick. They're both young, very young. 
And I walk in the door, and my wife's sitting there with two crying, snotty-nosed kids. She goes, it's about time you're home. Here, you take them. Yeah. Me the kids and walks up. <laughs> right. That was my welcome home. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You might <laughs> be being, big in Holland. <laughs> for being a big rock star. Yeah. I'm this huge rock star in Holland. I come home. Okay, welcome. And nobody in America knew me or right. anything, you know? And so I had that little moment, yeah. and it was, all, it was all over. The label was done. It, yeah. was, it was over. It was done. Well, that's a, that's incredible, man. But at least you had that moment as far as not only memories, but good stories as well, you know, and life lessons. There's a million life lessons in that little nugget right there for sure. Now, <laughs> Thanks for letting me share all this, my, my kind of my story of how I got out of music. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's a good backstory because where we'll go in the second part is what you're doing today, which... As you know, at this stage of the game, uh, everything you've talked to us about now has prepared you for what you're doing lately, which I hope is the trek you stay on for a while because you're creating some really great stuff. Hey, just jumping into the middle of my own podcast here to let you know I've got a new beginners stand-up comedy level one writing class coming up it's going to be on thursdays april 29th may 6th and 13th so this is the last time you can hear a podcast about it before it starts so if you're thinking about it make a note shoot me an email uh, school of laughs at gmail.com or just go to the website and click next classes you should see the link right there to the virtual stand-up comedy level one writing class it's a lot of fun this is for uh, newer comics or comics who've been at it for a while and haven't seen the results they want or maybe you're a speaker teacher trainer or preacher and you're out there delivering a message but you'd like to punch it up the way stand-up comics do and i'm going to teach you how to do that in these three sessions you'll have some homework you'll learn how to edit like a ninja and find places to look for humor and all kinds of other great stuff. So if you want to learn more about that, go to the schooloflast.com website. You can click the next classes, like I say. Click that link, and you can go ahead and sign up right away on that link if you'd like to. If you're not sure you want me to hold you a spot, shoot me an email, schooloflast at gmail.com. This is for first-time students only, so if you've taken the class before, uh, just due to to the nature of the online beast, I'm going to kind of keep this for first-timers only. We'll have some other classes down the road here pretty soon for those that have taken some priorly. Priorly? Prior to. Prior. Priorly. Before? Uh, I don't know what you say. I just got my uh, second shot today. And you know what? Actually, no side effects yet, so we'll see what happens. But uh, let's get back in this podcast here with Rick Altizer. Hey, this is Rick Roberts. You're listening to School of Last Podcast. I'm back for part two with Rick Altizer, the host of the Rick Altizer Show and the director of many of your faith-based films that you see at the theaters today. Rick, uh, we just had our first little segment a minute ago. Learned a little bit about your backstory, which, like comedians, uh, we have lots of ups and downs, lots of false starts maybe, or, or even complete career arcs that happen in three or four months sometimes, and then we're like right back to square one. And... With age, you start to realize that these aren't wasted years, months, times. These are moments where you can go back and look at specific intersections in your life. You know, I, one of my things I keep thinking of is like an aha moment is the intersection of either confusion and clarity or maybe necessity and, and provision, perhaps. But there are those little pivotal moments where you you have to say no to something and yes to something else to start over in a mm-hmm. way. So yeah, I've known you. I was trying to figure out the first year I met you. It was probably two thousand eight or nine when I was doing some things, maybe some shows at your church at the time. And and at that time, 
you know, you had done all the music stuff. I didn't know about any of that. I knew you as a guy who could help with audio and video. Now, the audio obviously comes from your background, you know, doing your CDs and, and those things. When did you start doing some video work? Well, the pivotal moment for me uh, was meeting when, when the record label folded. Mm-hmm. The president of that label was Kent Songer, who's been on my show. And we decided to partner up. Uh, and so that was the beginning of a, of a new thing for me was to have this guy who said, look, I can sell this if you can make this. So he was a marketing guy and he was working with Shonda Pierce, uh, kind of doing all of her marketing, getting all of her CDs in Christian bookstores, doing all the deals with Lifeway and at that time, Family Christian Stores, uh, getting their deals done. So I started because we were joined at the hip. I was helping him because he was getting paid as a, as a consultant, so I'm going to help out. So I started getting involved with Shonda. Shonda Pierce, very funny Christian comedian who, who uh, you know most of your audience probably knows. Mm-hmm. And I would do things like do some music for her. You know, we'd do a silly song, and I would, I would record it, as I've done with you. Right. You know, fun songs that we've done together. Um, and then I started doing some video stuff with her. My son, David, he was doing uh, wedding videos at the time. So I'm watching how he makes these wedding videos and he's telling stories and it's like, well, that's pretty easy. I, I could, I think I could do that. <clears throat> so I'm working with Shonda and doing little videos for her. And so she says to me one day, I want to make movies. And I said, well, gosh, I can't do a movie for you, Shonda, but I can do a demo tape. So I said, maybe I'll go on the road with you for a weekend and maybe get five minutes. And maybe we'll send that to some movie people and maybe they'll want to, oh, we like Shonda. Let's see if we can develop something with Shonda. She goes, yeah, that sounds fun. So I went on the road with her. I took a little camera, a Canon uh, T3i camera and a, and a $400 lens and I, and I put it on autofocus. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I put everything on auto, right? Right. And I'd never really done anything like that, but it was it was fun, and I noticed it was very similar to producing records. Well, that was the same skill set in putting something together video-wise, telling a story. Her manager, Andrew Tenenbaum, and herself took me to a pizza place, and they said, I'd made the 16 minutes, and they said, Rick, this is great. We love this. We want you to do this. You need to make this. So about 10 minutes of that 16 minutes ended up in our first movie. And so we make a movie, Laughing in the Dark. And so it's this funny, I had her comedy, and then I would cut from the comedy to her crying about her terrible marriage and her daughter won't talk to her, and then her husband who dies. And so you've got this really powerful story mixed with this humor, and you're you're getting the release from the intense story you're going through. I can go to some humor, but it was a whole other kind of movie that I had never done anything like that before. And And, and when you started that, you, I mean, you have a general timeline of how long it's going to take you. And and like you said, the movie completely changed in the middle of it. How long from let's go do this at the pizza parlor to the release date, three years, three years. How did you prepare yourself I, I saw some of the behind the scenes, um, like how you were organizing information on index cards and then cross indexing those things. And you were having everything, all the video that you had recorded transcribed and you had that documented. I guess initially, 
I would have to assume there were some points where you you were pretty overwhelmed, where you're like, uh, I can't say I can't say I can't do this, but how can I do this? Oh, I was. I remember taking a walk with my wife. I was. I was so stressed out because it was going to be something that maybe we'll put on her table, you know, or maybe and uh, Kent will will get just get it in the Christian bookstores, and so that was going to be what it was going to be. Then it turned into we're going to get it into theaters. It's going to be in eight hundred theaters, and we're going to spend two hundred thousand dollars on marketing, and it's all on me, a guy who's never made a movie in his life, and everything is on me. Yeah, that pressure. I'm the only guy making it, and yeah, I filmed most of it. And now I've got to edit it and put it together. And the pressure was com- was so overwhelming. It was it because it was like I don't want to. I I hope I don't screw this up. What if I make up something that's terrible? Mm-hmm. What if I really mess this up? I didn't know what to do, so I was just making up these processes as I went. And r- later, now I realize a lot of people make documentaries like this. I made what what now is termed. I didn't know what it was, but people call it a paper edit. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what it was, but I put, I, I got everything transcribed, went through all the transcriptions, highlighted what I wanted to keep, then made, took all the highlights, put it in another, uh, you know, collection, went through that and did a second highlight, then took all my highlights and put them on four by six index cards, then made a big box of index cards and then started moving index cards around until I came up with a movie, you know, a storyline that I liked. And then I took those index cards, and then I finally got what I wanted, which I'm calling my paper edit. Mm-hmm. Then I took that, and then I actually made it. I, I put it all together. What would what now I know is is called the radio edit, which is just we're just going to hear the audio and just putting it together, and then we'll we'll cut it up later. But and then I took that to an editor, and who uh, now that we had now we're the ball's rolling. Now it's going to be in theaters. So we hired an editor, and I showed him what I did, and he goes, you know, Rick, uh, they have usually like teams of like 20 people do what you did here. Yeah. You know that, right? I go, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The only thing you farmed out was somebody transcribing it. That was it. Everything else, <laughs> you were highlighting. Because I saw you in here, I'm man. I'm filming. I'm, you know. <laughs> it, was, it was like uh, a beautiful mind. Like, here's a guy who's, I just oh. need index cards, some tape, and a wall, and I'm going to figure this story out. I think this is important for our comedians that are listening. It would be our natural tendency to start editing video immediately. Right. And then trying to make it work. But there, there's a lot of lost hours there if you never use those clips. You were finding the usable audio. Had to be good audio. For it to even be in the film. Right. And then the video has a company that the story had to fit the arc of the overall movie. I'm sure you'd have times where you had like 10 different index cards all saying the same thing, basically proving the same point. But you're like, okay, which one proves it the best? And then you had to look at the intricacies and nuances of each of those clips. Yeah. But, and those are all gut feelings as a, a movie director, producer, editor, where you're trying to get the theme to flow. So I'd imagine a lot of it feels like you can't really bring somebody in side by side and say, you take this, I'll take this, we'll figure it out, because you've got the through line in your mind. And yeah. your wife helped you develop that in a way. Yeah, I was, as I was showing her things, she was saying, well, this is a love story. You know, wow. You know, that, 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 just just that statement. You know, and, and I don't like the, that there. I think it should go here, you know. And so she was really helpful with that. But for me, like on a whiteboard, I would write out, like three acts, act mm-hmm. one, act two, act three. And then I would have little chapters in each act. As a, as a comedian, you know, you, or any kind of writer, 
you, you've got a beginning, a middle, and an end, mm-hmm. and you've got you've got a story you want to tell, and you might have certain jokes that work here, certain jokes that work there, and and you kind of want a storyline through the whole thing, which I think is so much better than just getting up and telling some joke. You've seen it before, and you know who they are. That the, the top of the game, they there's a meaning in all why they put this joke here and why they put right. it there, and there's an arc to the whole thing. And and at the end of the night, you've got this cohesive amazing and it all comes together and it's it's great it's funny but it's also more than that sure it's bigger than that yeah when when comedy or movie any story song is done correctly you're, you're taking on a journey you've got some setbacks you got moments of hope then you got a, a double setback then you've got a new character enters that helps solve you some problems and then all of a sudden that character gets killed off like there's so <laughs> many different things that happen you know what i mean uh-huh. uh let me ask you this when so you're creating this flow chart mind map kind of outline for your movie i'm guessing there are probably some parts where like oh boy it'd be great to have some video that took me from this point to this point but i don't have it how do you as the director of the movie and as a friend of shonda or russ who you did a movie with we'll talk about that in a second um do you just suggest hey this is what we need we don't have it uh you have a show coming up or a performance or a time we get together and talk about it so i can connect these dots does that happen yeah, well, that especially in the Rush Taft movie, we, we really had that. Uh, after we got the radio edit, it's called B-roll. Mm-hmm. You need, as they're talking, as they're speaking, you need to have something, some kind of B-roll that goes over it. With Shonda, a lot of her, what she would talk about would be about her past, her family. And so we would get a lot of photos. And, and I was uh, scanning in photos, doing you know all the Photoshop work, taking out all the specs and mm-hmm. dust and all that. And we would overlay photos or videos. I would have to go collect videos, uh, old videotapes, VHS tapes, transferring them in. She's talking about uh, being Minnie Pearl at Opryland. Well, I had her on stage as Minnie Pearl at Opryland. You know, so so as she's talking about that, so knowing what I need, what I have, uh, that's always you know, part of the editing process is finding that B-roll to go over it. And with Russ, we actually had to go and shoot some. <laughs> you know, well, I, I, we were three weeks into the edit, and I had to go. I had to go film it. But that's part of what makes it. Uh, y- you get the radio edit, which they're just sitting there talking. Your story is there. Everything's there, but they're just people sitting talking, looking into the camera, and it's just boring. Okay, I got to have something. I got to show yeah. something here. I, I don't just want to show Russ talking. And a lot of times, Russ would think it, it would. Uh, would say something, then there'd be a pause. Then he would say something, then it'd be a pause. And so I had to cut all that to tighten him up. Right. So I would need to so, cover to cut that away. Yeah. with something because you just don't want to see him jumping around. It's called a jump cut. You mm-hmm. don't. So that would be the B roll for that. Now with Shonda on her comedy, what what was so great was I would f- I filmed her uh, show, let's say seven different times. I had seven versions of her show. I didn't have multi-camera shoot because it was just me. So I had one camera in the back of the thing filming her. Mm-hmm. Just a straight shot. That's all I had of, of each show. So what I could do was I could take the same joke that she told seven times and I could cut it. You know, I would want to tighten up her jokes a little bit. Well, in Paducah, she said this line real good. But the punchline in Ohio was great. Right, right. And the middle section in Dallas was better. So I could take from the seven different shows, I could take one joke and I could show it seven different ways. She's telling the same joke. And, and I, so as, a, as an editor, I could make it 
faster. I could tighten it up. I could give the best punchline, the best delivery. And it made it look like it was this big, huge thing. It's like, here she is in Dallas. Now here she is in Ohio. Now here she is in you know, Indiana. And so the one joke is told set from seven different locations. That's only because I didn't have multiple cameras. Right. <laughs> See, when you, when you tighten up on a, on a live show, I've got a straight on shot. And then I need to cut that section because there's a, a break or it's not as funny. And so you would cut to a side shot, right? And you're actually cutting stuff out, but it, I'm using different cameras. Well, I couldn't do that on the first movie. I didn't have multiple cameras. Right. I had to go to a different night. I had to actually go to a different show. But it worked great because it made it look like it was a bigger budget. Because we got seven different shows in one night. Sure. It, makes it looks like she's all over the world. Well, it tells a little mini story inside there without saying anything extra. Which I thought really worked real well. Then that coupled with this amazing story to go with it that was really intense. And again, not knowing what I was doing, it just happened. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's funny. Like The movies, are they're super moving. And you often wonder, had I known a lot more... It would have turned out differently. Would it turned out better or worse? May have been a little bit quicker. Who knows? I'm, I'm assuming your second and third movies with your systems in place now, even though it is a grueling task to put everything together, you know what you're doing. You're not worrying about that part anymore. I just want to just kind of leave it that you, you see these things in life that were just, it seemed like so many disappointments. I had so many things that I thought, I'm there, I'm there. Oh, I'm not there. Oh, I'm there, I'm there. I'm not there. And I mean, that just happened over and over and over again. But God uses everything. Mm -hmm. And I see now how all that was preparation for what I'm doing now. And in your own life as a comedian or as a recording artist or as a filmmaker, uh, we, you have these moments of disappointment and you, you look at yourself and you go, this isn't where I want to be. This isn't what I want to do with my career. I'm, I'm not, I'm not happy. I'm depressed. I go through, you, know, you go through depression. You go through all of these, uh, really difficult, trials and struggles with this trying to achieve this thing which which has so much of uh public praise mm -hmm. and affirmation and you're not getting that and you feel depressed and i i think it, it goes to the the question of you know wh what do you believe do you believe that god is real do you believe he's sovereign do you believe he's good then if you believe that and that's our struggle is to believe the, yeah, struggle is belief and and allowing him to be the Lord of our life. Yes. And and do I believe he's good? Mm -hmm. Do I believe, okay, it's not working out the way I want it to. I want to be Bruce Springsteen. Do I trust that, okay, it's not, I'm not being Bruce, I'm not going to be Bruce Springsteen. You know, it, it, it was a shock, you know, when I was 38 or whatever, I realized I'm not going to be Bruce Springsteen, which is depressing to say that, but you know. Well, but maybe Bruce Almighty. <laughs> <laughs> But through it, God is sovereign. God is leading. And so the question is, do you trust God? Right. And, and Jesus said, they said to Jesus, what are the works of God? Tell us what the works of God is. In John 6, he says, the work is to believe. Right. And so that's our work is to believe. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with my good buddy, Rick Altizer. Uh, man. I miss kind of hanging out. We've been kind of separate in the office during the pandemic. Haven't got to hang out as much as we normally do, uh, but that's all going to change here pretty soon. So looking forward to getting back in there and, and doing some work around Rick. He uh, His energy and his creativity rubs off, 
and he also is inspiring. So I hope you learned something in that episode. If you uh, want to learn more about Rick Altizer, it's rickaltizer.com. He spells his name correctly, R-I-C-K-A-L-T-I-Z-E-R.com. And you may have heard him on a previous podcast, episode 119, where he kind of wanted to learn about stand-up comedy before he was doing some of this movie stuff. And that episode is called Stand-Up Comedy Examined. And I really like that episode. It digs into the formulation of different jokes and what makes them funny. So I would actually really recommend that. If you're thinking about taking the writing class but not sure, this will give you a little insight onto how I look at comedy and go about writing it. So check that out. Episode 119, Stand-Up Comedy Examined More with my buddy Rick Altizer. All right, thanks again to John Smith for sponsoring this episode. Don't forget about the class coming up April 29, May 6th and 13th. You can log on to schooloflast.com and learn all about that and dig into the archives of the podcast with the search tool and learn about all the previous episodes. Type in the topic of your choice and you'll find a podcast on it. And if you don't, shoot me an email and we'll do one. All right, you guys take care. God bless and have a great afternoon, evening, morning, jog, swim, whatever you're doing. Take care. Stay safe. Stay funny. Welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by SchoolofLaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show.